Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And today we're going to finish the series that we've been doing on Turn the Tide, the New Benedictines. We've been looking for the past several weeks about the five classic vows of Benedictine monasticism. It's kind of a mouthful. We've been looking at those famous vows that you've heard people talk about before, uh, vows of chastity, poverty, obedience, stability, and today we're going to do number five, which is called the conversion of manners. I know that sounds a little bit strange, the conversion of manners. And we're not trying to become monks here at Grace. We're not trying to become nuns. We're not trying to become Benedictines. We're trying to take the essence or the goal or the spirit behind some of these vows. When people decided that they really wanted to serve Jesus with all of their heart, they would embrace these vows. And so we've been looking at them to say, what's, what's behind these vows that we should um, import into our lives today? And by the way, if you were not here last Sunday, please log into our podcast and listen to Pastor Dennis Bachman's message on the vow of poverty. He tackled that one for us, and he did a wonderful job. He brought some really incredible um, biblical perspectives on wealth and money. He talked about how we should have a theology of abundance, which means God is big and awesome and, and for us, but our theology of abundance is tempered by a doctrine of enough, where with our money we realize how much is enough, and we, we live in contentment and gratitude, and we become givers. It was a fantastic message um, uh, last Sunday on the vow of poverty. But today, let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll tackle this last vow before we shift gears toward our Holy Week themes. In 2 Corinthians 3.13, the Apostle Paul writes that we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray one more time today. God, as we look at this passage and some others, would you um, let us live this verse and let us shift our gaze and our attention more to you? And as we do this morning, would you let more of your glory, more of your weight and, and splendor and beauty, let that be um, transposed onto our soul. And would you change us today? Would you let us be like a sponge that just absorbs water um, all throughout, Lord? Would you let our souls absorb your strength and your grace and your power this morning? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One of my favorite quotes comes from an ancient Jewish slash Greek philosopher named Philo of Alexandria. And Philo said, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And 
Um, I think that's true. I believe that. The Bible tells us that. Um, I'm living that, so I know that that's true for me. And pastorally, as I observe you and as I observe people, I see that that's the case. I see that everyone is fighting a great battle. And one of Jessica and my personal guiding values for our life, and I think it's a guiding value for our church, is that we want to be a voice of hope and strength for people in the middle of their battles. I think that's what we're called to as a congregation. We're called to be a voice of hope and strength as people fight these great battles in their life. Um, I had the chance to speak at the chapel service at Western Christian High School a couple of weeks ago, and I used the passage from Genesis 35 when Rachel was in, in hard labor. She was travailing in labor, and she began to despair, and probably all women despair at some point in the middle of hard labor, but she had a midwife next to her that said, fear not, you will have this child. And, and I read that passage and think, that's who I want to be. I don't know how well I always do or don't do at that, but I want to be and I want us to be a, a, a spiritual midwife of sorts that speaks to people in the middle of the great battle that all of us are facing and, and, and imparts hope and perspective. And so what I want to do today, as we look at this final vow, I want to try and do that for you. And I want to try and do it for myself. I want to try and, and um, speak hope and strength into us in one specific area of battle. See, not only is everyone facing a great battle, as Philo said, I think most people are fighting many battles on multiple fronts. And today, I want to talk specifically about the battle that you are facing with yourself. See, we all, I think it's probably we all, we all have an area of our life that we need to change. We all have an area where we need to transform or grow or become better. Now, other people might have areas where they want you to transform or grow or change. Everybody has an opinion about you, and you and you might not fully agree with their assessment, but we probably have an area where I know I need to change. Uh, but is that true? But change can be difficult, can't it? You know, it's kind of funny. Every year they publish the top five list of New Year resolutions. Do you know the list never changes? Sometimes the order of the items change, but the top five never change. Every year people want to do better with money. They want to improve their relationships. They want to have more time. They want to get in better shape. The reason the top five New Year resolutions never change is because people don't change. People don't keep their resolutions. Change is difficult. Um, in fact, let me read a little quote to you. When Jessica and I were married, one of the pastors who spoke, and oh my gosh, we had a long wedding. I don't know what we were thinking, babe. We had three Either we were so happy and in love or it was kind of narcissistic. I don't know, but we had three pastors get up and talk. Both of our dads talked. My brother sang a solo. My brother and sister sang a duet, and we had a slideshow. <laughs> one, one of my groomsmen had shoes that was like one and a half sizes too small. He was so mad at us because he stood up there for about an hour and 15 minutes. But, but one of the pastors read a quote about priorities and change, and this quote actually comes from a monk. We don't know who wrote it, but a monk in 1100 AD 
wrote this. He, he said, when I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I decided to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't really change the town, and so as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realized the only thing I can change is myself. If long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. The town's impact could have possibly changed the nation, and maybe I could indeed have changed the world. Well, how do we change ourselves? How do we break a bad habit or kick an addiction or turn a, a vice into a virtue? How do we change in such a way that we actually begin to turn the tide and influence people um, around us? You know, sometimes people say, and, and I've seen it, it's true, sometimes people have radical encounters with God that totally change them, and they, they are like a totally different person. I've I've, I've heard stories, I've witnessed stories of people who I was addicted and then I came to the altar and I prayed and I'm free and I've never had another temptation. I've had spouses say to me, oh my God, my husband was a bum and he was disconnected and not engaged and he was mean and then he met Jesus and I don't know what happened but this is the man of my dreams. That does happen. But probably more common than that is not so much the, I was this, and wow, oh my God, now I'm that. What's a little more realistic is that we change by degrees. In fact, let me read you this verse again, but from the ESV translation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 in the English Standard Version says, And we all, who with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So God wants to transform us by degree increasingly into the image of God. The word transform, we are transformed into his image, is the Greek word metamorpho. Can you hear our English word metamorphosis in that? Our English word metamorphosis comes from this word um, transform in the Greek. Um, what... What creature do you think of when you hear the word metamorphosis? And uh, I'm not talking about a transformer or a, a Marvel superhero. No, an actual creature. Yeah, yeah, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Um, we, we, we act, think about this. We actually have a creature in our world. We've seen it. This isn't like a unicorn. This isn't like a mythical thing that we've heard about. We have seen these creatures we have creatures in our world that start out as one thing and then they go through a transformation process where by degrees they actually become another thing. This is so fascinating. And this isn't like a creature that transforms and becomes a better version of itself. It's not like a cheetah can run 70 miles per hour and then it transforms, and now it's a cheetah that can run 100 miles per hour. That would be cool, but that's not this process. In this process, we have creatures that literally go from a caterpillar, which is what? Basically, a, it's a hairy worm. It's an insect. And it transforms, not into a better worm, into a beautiful flying creature. That's crazy. And what's especially crazy is that Paul uses a word 
that draws our attention to that imagery to describe the process that God wants to bring in our lives. God wants to transform us, not just clean you up and make you a slightly better, more Christianized version of you. He wants to metamorphosize you into something. I think that's powerful. I think that's amazing. Um, Now, the Benedictine monks had a name for this process. They called this the conversion of manners. Now, if any of you have been fact-checking me during this series, if you've done any Googling on the Benedictine monks, you may have noticed that sometimes poverty and chastity get uh, included under the banner of conversion of manners. So some people say that there are five vows. Some people say there's three, obedience, stability, conversion of manners, which includes poverty and chastity. But regardless of how they arrange it, the conversion of manners is a radical, passionate commitment to this process. It's a commitment to the incremental, by degree, turning to Jesus transformation that takes me from this into that. Now, the the big theological term for this is sanctification. That's the process by which we become more and more like Jesus. And Paul said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So these nuns, these monks, they wanted to experience as much of the freedom of the Lord as possible. Um, Now, you've noticed, though, that with the butterfly, there's never really a, a superhero moment where the caterpillar crawls into the cocoon, sits there for a second, and then flexes its wings, and all of a sudden it bursts the cocoon, and behold, the butterfly. There, there's, never a, there's never a Superman in the, the phone booth uh, moment. No, it happens incrementally. It happens by degrees. And according to Paul, we change. So assuming you're on board with this, and assuming you want to change um, to another degree of glory, we change the same way that Moses did. He said, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Let me explain what that process was. You could flip over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34 if you want to. Um, In Exodus 34, verse 29, this explains what Paul was referencing. It says, when Moses would come down from Mount Sinai, when he came down with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he had spent 40 days on the mountaintop with God. He was not aware that his face was radiant. His face was glowing. He got inside the glow of God's presence and he came down and the glow was on his face. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them all the commands that God had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what he had been commanded, and they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory 
and we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul was saying this. Paul was saying that we change by degrees as we gaze on the object that we want to change into. Paul was saying essentially this. We humans become what we consistently behold. There seems to be something in the human soul that begins to take on the nature and the attributes of our affections and our associations. Do you think that's true? That we humans begin to look like our associations? We begin to look like what we behold? Have you ever been around a really miserable person? <laughs> Said that too quickly. I notice you're sitting alone. No, I'm just... Um, I don't know who said that. Um, but have you ever been around somebody that they, they just, if there's something that's a bummer, they're going to see it and they're going to talk about it. They're always bummed out. They're always upset. And they probably have a, a, a tough situation, but it's like that's all they can see. And have you ever noticed that when somebody is always negative, always critical, over time, they're not just being critical, they become critical. They become bitter. Uh, people actually can start to look miserable and bitter when they focus on misery and bitterness too much. We become what we consistently behold. You ever been around somebody and they just seemed a little bit creepy to you? You just kind of picked up on a creepy vibe? I know we're not supposed to be judgmental, but have you ever just thought, there's something off here? Do you know what? Creepy people become creepy people by spending too much time looking at creepy things. We become what we behold. We begin to absorb into our soul the things that we fixate on and focus on. Now, there's a positive side to this, by the way. It's not all negative. Have you ever been around somebody that just radiates gratitude? And no matter what's going wrong, they can always find something that's, that's, that's worth being grateful for. Those, those people are amazing. Jessica and I had a pastor once who felt like he, God was convicting him that he was not a very grateful person. So he made a commitment, I am going to become grateful. And so he started this vow, he decided, I'm not going to take a sip of water until I say thank you for the chance to drink water. Then he would drink it. He'd pull a shirt out of his drawer. God, thank you for a clean white t-shirt. He would stand in the longest line he could find at the grocery store so that he had more time to say thank you for the health to stand in line. And if by the time he got to the checker, he wasn't grateful, he would move to the back of the line again. <laughs> That's a little bit creepy, but... Um, <laughs> But he worked gratitude into his soul. Um, Jessica's mom is here. Marco's with us today, my mother-in-law. And um, we lost John, uh, my father-in-law, Jessica's dad, Margo's husband, about three years ago. And we miss him so much. And Margo and John were, you were married 38 years? 45? Did I say 38? I meant 45. Um, <laughs> I thought I knew you better than that. <clears throat> but... Margot and John had an incredible marriage. She misses him, has grieved for him. But you know what's incredible? When Jessica and I try and check on her and ask how she's doing, there's two ways she could look at the loss of her husband. Um, she could be saying, I can't believe I've lost him after 45 years. But you know what she says instead of that? She says, I can't believe I had him for 45 years. Of course she misses him. She's not trying to be Mary Poppins. Of course it hurts and it's real and raw and 
painful. But, but some people say, I can't believe um, I lost him. Other people say, wow, not everybody gets to have somebody like I had. And instead of, I can't believe he's gone, Lord, thank you for what I had. Thank you for, um, for transforming me. You know, you've heard that story probably of um, a couple of travelers who were approaching a city for the first time, and there's an old guy sitting outside the city gate, and one of the travelers comes up and says, excuse me, sir, this is my first time to your city. Can you tell me what the people in your city are like? And the old man says, sure, I'll tell you, but first, tell me what the people were like in the city that you just came from. And the man says, oh, they were the worst. They were mean and nasty and backbiting. You could never form a community with them. And I'm hoping this city's better. And the old man says, oh, unfortunately, son, you're probably going to find the people here are just like those. And then the next guy shows up and says, hello, sir, I'm new to your city. Can you tell me what to expect as I uh, meet your people? And the man says, sure, tell me what they were like where you came from. And, and the man says, oh, they were the best. <laughs> they were so kind that it was so easy to form community with them. They were amazing. And the man smiled, and he says, well, welcome to our city, son. You'll probably find the people here are just like that. See, there's, there's, there's something um, in the human soul that becomes what we behold. Parents understand this. You parents understand this. We parents are uptight about what our kids watch and listen to and who they associate with because we know the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. So we parents know that the wrong associations can actually corrupt a character that started out good. Proverbs 13.20 says, if you walk with the wise, guess what? You'll become wise. But the companion of fools will suffer. One translation says the companion of fools will be destroyed. So there's something inside our makeup. I can't explain it. It just seems to be the case that makes us become like the people that we most closely associate with. In fact, it's been a long accepted uh, principle in the world of business, motivational speaking, self-help, that you and I um, become a composite of the five closest relationships in our lives. In fact, Jim Rohn, who was like a motivational speaking guru, he used to say that, that you are the average of the five people that you spend most of your time with. And they actually make predictions. Based on who you're surrounded by, I can predict where you're going in life and how far you'll go in life. So who are those five people? Just think for a quick second. Who are the, the top few people that you spend most of your time with? You are the average of those people. <laughs> Some people think that even couples start to look like each other after a while. Have you heard that? That, that couples, I think I got a picture of a couple that... Um, they. <laughs> they look like twins. <laughs> they look so sad. I hope, I hope we look better than that, babe. But um, I, I've also heard people say that sometimes dog owners look like their pets. Is that true? <laughs> that looks like me. The, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And so when we gaze at his freedom long enough, we begin to incrementally be set free. So here's the problem. We people, we're, we're good at peaking, 
We're decent at glancing. And we might even be okay at doing a few minutes of devotions, but we're not very good at gazing. If we compare the amount of time we spend gazing to the amount of time we spend watching Netflix or hanging out or reading novels or whatever we do for fun, we'll see a disparity. Sometimes we peek, we glance, and then we wonder why we're not transforming more. Um, go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Look at, look at a fascinating um, moment in Daniel's life. In Daniel 7, Daniel's having a vision, and he responds to this vision in a really interesting way. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked. So I'm looking, I'm gazing, I'm beholding, and then he sees some things. And then in verse 6, he says, after that, I looked, and he sees a few more things. And then in verse 7, he says, after that, in my vision at night, I looked. I, I would have quit looking after the first few looks probably. Verse 9, he says, as I looked. Verse 11, then I continued to watch. Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked. And look at what he saw. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel saw an Old Testament picture of Jesus. And he approached the ancient of days. What's that? That's, that's God the Father. Daniel was seeing a vision of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And he was led to his presence. Daniel said, I looked and I looked and I watched and I kept looking and I kept looking until I saw. And when Daniel saw the glory of God, it changed him. Every time we are exposed to a new dimension of the glory of God, we change by another degree into that same glory. Let me do one more passage in Psalm 34, verse 1. David wrote this, and he said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. He says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And then verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. They glow. They have a Moses or an Apostle Paul moment. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Now, this is crazy because when David wrote this, he was in a bummer of a situation. When David wrote Psalm 34, King Saul, his boss, his father figure, his mentor, was trying to kill him. There was nowhere in Israel where David felt safe. So do you know where he went? He decided to hide out in the country of the Philistines. And if you remember your Bible stories, Goliath the giant that David famously killed was a Philistine. David literally felt safer in the country of his enemies than in his own hometown. But when David gets there, the king of the Philistines sees David and he's like, what is he doing here? Don't you guys remember that over in Israel, they're singing songs about how David has killed 10,000 Philistines? And so David panics. I can't go home, they're gonna kill me here. So he's quick on his feet and he instantly starts drooling. He starts spitting in his beard. He starts speaking gibberish and then writing crazy things on the wall. He pretends to be insane. And the king says, Why? first of all, we shouldn't have brought him here in the first place. Second of all, he's crazy, get him out of my sight. So David runs for his life yet again. And at that moment in his life, David writes Psalm 34. 
where he says, whether you're being hunted at home or abroad, when all is lost, when you turn to the Lord, your face begins to glow. The glory of God touches you and your face will never be put to shame. To the degree that we turn and turn and gaze and gaze, the glory begins to be transposed into our own soul. Let me read you a different phrasing of the same idea from a book by a man named uh, the Reverend Henry Scoogle. Henry Scoogle was a British pastor and seminary professor. He lived in the 1600s. He didn't live long. He actually died at 28. But he was a very influential pastor, and he wrote a little book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. This book was, was incredibly influential in shaping the life of George Whitfield. George Whitfield became one of the premier leaders of America's first great awakening. In the 1730s and 1740s, America, so this is just a couple of decades before our war for independence, America experienced a massive religious and spiritual revival that swept through the colonies, left a permanent mark on the character and the nature of our country, and it was known as the first great awakening. The leaders were um, John Wesley and George Whitfield was one of these leaders. George Whitfield was a brilliant preacher, phenomenal preacher, and he could speak in open-air gatherings to thousands of people with no amplification. He was <clears throat> such a, an amazing speaker that Benjamin Franklin became intrigued by him. And Benjamin Franklin wanted to listen to George Whitfield speak. And so Franklin, ever the scientist, you know, he wanted the facts, and he dismissed these reports that Whitfield could speak to thousands of people. And he said, there's no way that a human voice can carry that far. So Franklin went to listen to Whitfield speak at a gathering in um, Pennsylvania, and he, he came up to the front where Whitfield was speaking, and, and he noticed, wow, this guy's voice really carries. So Franklin started to pace off the steps of how far he could go and still hear Whitfield speaking. Franklin got 500 feet from the platform and could still hear him. So how far is the football field? 300 feet. So almost two football fields away, you could still hear Whitfield's voice. So Franklin then did a little bit of math, and he he considered the semicircle around the platform, out 500 feet. He gave two square feet per person, and he concluded that George Whitfield could be heard by 30,000 people in an open-air preaching setting. It's crazy. Plus, this is kind of funny. Um, Whitfield was also very persuasive, and Franklin knew that they were probably going to ask for money, typical church gathering. And so Franklin determined he was not going to give any money to George Whitfield. In fact, in his autobiography, Franklin wrote this. He wrote, I happened soon after to attend one of Whitfield's sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection. And I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. <laughs> Have you ever done that? The offering's coming up. He shall get nothing from me. <laughs> I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles, Spanish coins, in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften, and I concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined me to give the silver. He finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. <laughs> I read another story of Franklin told this to one of his friends. So Franklin's friend went to the church service, and he didn't bring any money with him. 
because he thought, I'm not gonna lose any money. He gets there, he's so moved, he starts borrowing money from other people so he could give an offering. But anyway, Whitfield was reading Skoogle's book. And Skoogle's message shaped this man who helped shape this great awakening in our country's history. I just wanna read a couple of sentences because he rephrases everything I've been saying for the past half an hour in a, a beautiful way. Skoogle wrote, the true way, I dropped my book in our community hot tub the other day, so it's still kind of damp and a little musty. The the true way to improve and ennoble our souls, in other words, the true way to change is by fixing our love on the divine perfections of God that we may have them always before us and derive an impression of them on ourselves. And then, beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. The images of our affection frequently present themselves unto the mind. And he's writing this in the 1600s. He says, there's a secret force and energy that makes them insinuate into the very constitution of the soul. And it molds and fashions the soul into that likeness. Hence, we may easily see how lovers and friends slide into the imitation of the persons whom they love. And how even before they're aware, they begin to resemble them, not only in the more considerable instances of their behavior, but also in their voice and their gesture. And certainly... Um, we too would be transformed and we would transcribe the virtues and the inward beauties of the soul if they were the object and motive of our love. He who, with a generous and holy ambition, has raised his eyes toward the uncreated beauty and goodness and fixed his affection there is quite of another spirit, of a more excellent and heroic temper than the rest of the world and cannot but infinitely disdain all mean and unworthy things. See, when most people try to change, they try to take the white-knuckle approach. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to look anymore. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to go down that road anymore. And there's a place for that. We are supposed to resist sin. But, but Scoogle would say, and it sounds like Paul and Moses would say, there's a more noble way to pursue change. It's not just no, it's yes. It's not just I don't want to do that. It's I want to fall in love with what I want to be because I will become the object of my love. Um, Let me have the worship team rejoin me and I'm going to read some closing words from Hebrews chapter 12. These are famous words, but I want to read them again with this perspective of what happens when we turn to Jesus. In Hebrews 12 verse 1, Most of you have heard this before. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And here's how. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him 
who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but it's interesting that this author connects our struggle with sin to fixing our gaze on Jesus. This author doesn't just say, don't sin, fight sin. He says, if you want to run your race, if you want to run your destiny, if you want to be everything that God has created you to be, it begins by looking to Jesus. And then Paul says something pretty amazing here. When I look to Jesus, the veil that's been over my thinking starts to part. So when I am in the middle of a storm, I go to the passages where Jesus calmed the storm. When I feel like I'm sinking under the waves, I read the passages where Jesus walked on top of the waves. When it seems like death is clobbering me and swallowing up my world, I read the Lazarus story. And I remember when Jesus stood at the tomb of the dead man and he commanded that they roll away the stone. And they're like, Lord, we can't do that. He's been dead for three days. And then Jesus stood at the mouth of the tomb and he called the dead man forth. And it says, he who was dead came forth. See, when I don't have enough money, when I'm strapped and stressed, I go to the passage where Jesus took bread and multiplied it to feed the thousands. I gaze. And since I become what I gaze upon, I change. Do you remember when Jesus told his followers that he would give them keys of the kingdom? This is a kingdom key. This is a key that will unlock a dimension of life in God's kingdom or his reality for you. When Here's the key. Whenever we turn to Jesus, the veil lifts. So if you ever don't know what to do or who to be or how to act or where to go or how to understand the Bible, we first start with Jesus. By the way, you're never going to understand the Old Testament if you just read the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not make sense until you read it through the lens and the perspective of Jesus. There's a veil over your thinking until you see him and then, okay, now I understand this. I don't know how to be a dad, so I look to him. Okay, the veil parts a little bit more. I don't know how to be in this situation. I don't know how to carry on. So I turn to him and the veil peels back and suddenly I can see. The image of God gets transposed onto the image of my soul and it changes me. So you and I are what we love. We are the composite of what we most consistently behold. So are we loving the right things? Are we consistently beholding the things that we want to become? So to summarize our series here, if, if you've been with me these weeks and if you've been making commitments with me every week, then for our Benedictine series, you've made these commitments. You have committed to swimming upstream in a highly sexualized culture. Not easy to do, but you've committed to walking in holiness and purity with that part of your life. You've committed to obeying God wherever it takes you. Do you remember what we said about obedience? If God knows you the most and loves you the most, his commands for you will be the best. He'll know what you need and he'll want the best for you, so his commands will only be for your best. You will have committed to burning the ships in your life. 
cutting the lifeboats and staying committed to the place that God has called you to in your life. Um, You will have committed to trusting God's abundance and embracing that doctrine of enough. And you will have committed this morning to changing your gaze and constantly turning like Moses, like Paul, over and over to the person, the work, the life of Jesus Christ.